0: Thank you very much, Mark. Um, I'm, I'm uh, humbled by the introduction. And Frank, thank you for dealing with uh, trolls and handling the details of the meeting. Uh, I have had an amazing life. The last 25 years of it, um, I have managed without alcohol. But if you'd asked me when I was a kid growing up in a small classic Midwestern town, if I would have expected to, have met George Bush and Barack Obama. If I thought I might introduce Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama on national TV before a debate, um, if I thought that I would spend two years in bed, too depressed to even bother getting up, uh, I wouldn't have believed any of it. But it's um, it's been my life so far and I'm grateful for it. Uh, when I work with sponsees, and going back, um, the, the theory is that you cannot drive the car by looking in the rearview mirror, but you also can't drive if you have a dumpster load of junk hanging off the bumper. So it's uh, an exercise in both clearing the way for the future and in getting the stuff out of that dumpster that's attached to the bumper. And unfortunately for me and probably almost everybody else, I keep throwing stuff in there as I go along. So, um, It's not just clean it out once and done. I think probably uh, part of my story is a little different in that I was um, an alcoholic who managed to drink fairly responsibly for a long time. I was one of the few people around who knew when to switch to water on a night at the bar dancing so that I wouldn't be hung over. And usually when I say that in AA meetings, people just scratch their heads in, in disbelief Um, But of course that didn't last, which is why I am here. I also like responses to look at the patterns, the things that are the triggers to drinking and not just to drinking, but to uh, a life that's lived in a a less than optimal way because the program is not a program just about stopping drinking. It's a program about learning how to live uh, and that I continue to do on a daily basis. But, uh, for me, one of the one of the driving issues has been um, being, I would call it, underestimated. Uh, I, as I said, I grew up in a fairly small midwestern town, just kind of really normal fifties, one working parent, one stay-at-home mom kind of um, kind of thing. But I was smaller than everybody else in my class. I I went if that lasted a long time. I have a brother five years younger, when he was 18 and I was 23, we went to a bar together. Uh, I got carded and he didn't. So that's how much younger I looked than everyone. And it was a problem because everybody treated me as, uh, as though I were much younger than I were. And so that was, it was just a source of anxiety. And I was one of the smartest kids in the class. So I was getting treated like I was nine when I was um, 13. I didn't didn't have any unusual, anything going on in my childhood, very loving parents and grandparents, although um, a father who I would later learn was an alcoholic and a mother who had depression. But as a kid, you just don't see those kinds of things unless it's really severe. Uh, I do remember my brother's kindergarten teacher calling home because his show and tell was my dad didn't go to work today. He had martini poisoning, so he stayed home. And that was really the first uh, clue that I had. Uh, but then I didn't think anything was wrong about martini poisoning. And I was used to going to the liquor store with my dad to get um, half gallons in cases because he, was, he became an executive at uh, uh, an auto-related company. And we had international guests all the time and lots of very fifties and sixties, lots of cocktail parties. I had my first drink. I poured my first drink to myself at a political fundraiser, which is ironic, given how the rest of my life turned out, for a very conservative, undoubtedly very religious candidate, just happened to be next door neighbors. It was cold duck. It's horrible stuff. I pour three glasses for whoever was coming up to the table and one glass for myself because I didn't have a clue what was going to happen. And of course, the result was not uh, not what I wanted. I wound up in bed throwing up. And the difference between normal people and alcoholics is that when we have that kind of a result from drinking, it doesn't stop us from going back to drink again. Uh, If I ate melon and it didn't agree with me, I wouldn't eat melon again. That just would be the end of it. But um, alcohol was such a grip on me that it didn't matter what happened. I went back for the next uh, the next the next time. So my story is not just about alcohol, but also about a lot of other kinds of obsessive uh, behavior. I was anorexic, bulimic. Uh, I can get addicted to almost anything uh, or overdo it. It's just the way I was built. Um, and before I started uh, really getting out of control with drinking, I had my first experiences with depression. Um, and I think at the time it was really not recognized. I was probably 18, 19, which is a common time for it to begin. And I just couldn't, I couldn't function. But nobody around me saw it. Uh, on the other hand, I started smoking at age 13 and nobody saw that either. I look back and I wonder how, you know, how could that happen? I must've smelled like tobacco smoke when I came in. In high school, uh, my solution to not fitting in was to find the group of the the hoodlums and go hang out with them and smoke cigarettes before school and then go into school and get straight A's. So I was a a straight A hoodlum and as long as I was um, getting straight A's, working part-time, nobody noticed. So a lot of things happened that really, I wish somebody had stepped in. Uh, I don't know how my parents bought the story about why there was a half a gallon of scotch wedged under the driver's seat of the car that I had borrowed. Oh, it belonged to my boyfriend. I'm 17 at the time. How did they sell that story? (laughs) That's an outrageous story, Um, but I did. Anyway, the depression was the biggest problem. I, but, and I came home then from my first um, semester at college, and I had gained some weight. I don't know how to translate it into stone, but I went, I gained about 10 pounds and I'm small, 5'5". Five, five. And it really wasn't that extreme, but my grandmother looked at me and said five words that changed my life. She said, you sure got, look, you sure got fat. And within a year, I weighed 88 pounds. It was my first serious addiction. I had dropped to a point of being really dangerously uh, anorexic uh, and really nobody noticed that either. And I packed myself off to Japan where I did most of my junior year of college. Uh, And that was the end of the eating disorder of the anorexia because I couldn't find a calorie book in Japanese. So I didn't know how many calories there were in anything and I didn't have any way to count, but it was also the beginning of a much bigger problem with alcohol. At the time in Japan, there were uh, vending machines for beer and sake uh, on the street everywhere. And while it was alcohol was forbidden in the dorm room where I was going to college there, we would just go sit on the curb and buy beers from the vending machine and the local policeman would come around around midnight and pull the plug on the vending machine to tell us to go home. It Didn't occur to us till many years later that he had to plug it in again right away when we left. But um, the bigger problem in Japan is that it is considered rude to let anyone else's glass go empty when you're out drinking in a, in a group setting. So that means you never have any idea how much you're drinking because you constantly have a full glass in front of you. Um, and the only way to gauge it is um, in that rear view mirror. And the, ca- the culture is very alcohol dependent. I remember having a group, drunk Japanese, called them salarymen, sadoniman, come up to me in the street. And they would, their first English lesson was, this is a pencil. And I got so sick of that one day that I said, this is a finger. And um, I felt much better about the whole thing after that. But came back from Japan, still drinking too much, but not in any way that I thought was problematic. And then it got better again. And this is part of my problem with alcohol is that I can look like a normie for periods of time, but it's really dangerous because it's not gonna last. Um, But I did very well. I was the anchor on my college chug team. We won every time. But again, I was the one who switched to water uh, at the right time. It didn't keep me from all kinds of um, behavior that in the rearview mirror I, I'm really uh, embarrassed about, but that was, <laughs> that was just signs of what to come. I finished college in three years, went off to law school, um, turned down Harvard, went to law school someplace that was less expensive and where I didn't have to be cold, and where there was incredible culture of of alcohol and partying. It was in Virginia and a great state for hospitality. The law school and the business school hosted a kegger every Friday afternoon between the two schools and as much beer as you could drink. I have no idea who paid for that. I'm assuming it was the the publicly funded universities that paid for it. Uh, And then the, the classic there was to have those gigantic fountains and the the brew was ethanol, which is basically pure alcohol, grain alcohol mixed with Hawaiian punch. Um, so again, no way to calibrate how much you're drinking. And it is in a um, mountainous area in the Appalachian mountains. So a lot of driving on curvy roads. And I'm an agnostic slash atheist, depends on which day you ask me, but, um, I am to this day, so grateful to God that I did not kill myself or someone else uh, drunk driving there. And the parting really got out of control there. This is the start of my uh, finding rich friends who could fund my alcohol and um, cocaine habits. And one of my dearest friends in alcohols family owned a shipping line and the Mount Gay Barbados rum distillery And this is at a time when women were just being admitted to law school, so I was amidst amidst guys and two of my closest friends would come wake me up and come out to where I lived, which was old slave quarters on one of the oldest states, get me out of bed at three o'clock in the morning and say okay you're coming with us we're going to go party. Sort of a, a kidnapping. And I made a deal that I could get dressed. And later I made a deal that I could drive my own car so I didn't have to wait for somebody else to take me home at two o'clock the next afternoon. Um, And the alcohol was getting completely out of control but Victor had endless finances. So the solution to that was a a lot of cocaine and the combination was pretty good. You could drink a whole lot and then get back to class the next morning uh, with a few lines of cocaine and plenty of, um, plenty of bad behavior too. And at that point, I was not switching to water. I was trying not to take any classes, law school classes that started before one o'clock in the afternoon, because I knew that I couldn't reliably get up and get to a class. Um, but as I have been wont to do, I've always managed to just grab on, get through whatever I needed to do uh, and then, and then go drink (laughs) to solve the problem. Um, So finished law school, got a job in a blue, um, I guess they call it a white shoe law firm, a big uh, Wall Street law firm. And again, the drinking was really institutionalized there. And it was, I think for women, uh, first, we have a lower tolerance and But second, the doors were closed to me for a lot of the kinds of things that men would do to to do deals and business in the legal profession. I could not go into many of the clubs because they were men only. Uh, And of course, they were white men only and no Jews either. Uh, But I could go out drinking with the boys. And again, it was a very male world at that time. It's the world I grew up in when I first looked for a job a part-time job in high school. The one ads for employment were um, jobs offered men and jobs offered women. And the newspaper columns actually had the kind of blue colored printed behind the men jobs and pink behind the women. Um, and there was they were just very different paths, which was a, a huge issue for me because I had always been told growing up that I could do, Whatever I wanted to do, so here's the real world, and here's what I what I grew up knowing, uh, and I also continued to look to look younger, and my way of fitting in was as it had been uh, in high school to find a crowd of people who drank, and to fit in by drinking, and to drown all the feelings of inadequacy um, by drinking, and I felt always less than just such a classic alcoholic pattern. I've always felt less than, and I was heavily self-medicating by the time I got to law school. So depressed, and there was really not much of anything um, that out there that was helpful at the time. So I'd go to my classes, come home, first stuff myself with as much food as I could imagine, and then start drinking. And so I went from 88 pounds to 160 and basically doubled my weight. Um, Bulimia, another addiction. Just, uh, you know, it's been my life. It's the path and I always have to pay attention. That eventually got me to treatment for the first time, but for bulimia, not for alcoholism. And it was the first place where I heard the term cross addiction, uh, that if you were dealing with an addiction, with bulimia, an eating disorder, you really had to watch for your alcohol consumption or for any other kind of addiction. Um, So I once again, went into a period where my drinking was not a problem. I had to learn to eat. And it's very different obviously with an eating disorder because you can't solve it just by saying, well, that's fine, I'll just abstain. I won't eat anymore and then I won't have a problem. And there though, the problem is very similar. It's black and white thinking. Either something is all good or all bad. And if I've eaten one Oreo, I might as well just eat the whole pack because the whole day is ruined anyway. It's the whole one drink mentality, right? I had one drink. So what the hell, you know, might as well blow it out. Although I was planning on just having one. And so resolve that problem went on started drinking heavily again. It's a pressure world being in a big law firm. And uh, eventually I quit I quit that legal job. I just couldn't handle um, the ethics of some of the things that I was asked to do on behalf of big corporations. It was just going to work and coming home and crying at night, thinking, what am i what am I doing to the people on the other side of this transaction that I'm doing? And I drowned a lot of that in alcohol too. Uh, And I had also had, I've had a long series of physical health issues. And this is the first time that showed up. I had a a first date, we went off on a motorcycle. And by 1130 that night, I had one of the worst headaches I could imagine. It felt like my brain was hitting the top of my skull. By one o'clock in the morning, I was in the emergency room with viral meningitis, having had a spinal tap. and. Nice guy. He stayed there until three o'clock in the morning when I was settled in a room. And we we dated for a long time after that. But I was I was in isolation. So if you're thinking about the COVID vaccination, I can tell you that being in the in the isolation ward in a hospital uh, is no fun. I could have one person come in at a time twice a day with full, you know, garb, bunny suits and all of that. Uh, And I so I was fortunate, came out of that with no brain damage, which can often happen uh, and didn't and had quit drinking during that period. So, again, I had a period where I was not drinking, but not because I had planned it. But I very quickly after that went into a problem, a, a place where I was just really in trouble. I moved to Washington, D.C. to practice law there. Had a lovely house on the Potomac overlooking the CIA. I would look at that building and thinking, I wonder if they're watching me over here. But my moment of, and again, just an incredible amount of drinking. I had a drive home. Uh, There was an a wine and cheese party at the firm every Friday afternoon, but I kept having to refill the wine bottle throughout the week because I couldn't just leave it in the refrigerator. it sang to me <laughs> at the end of the day. And I would wait until everybody else went home, finish all that bottle of gall-hardy burgundy or whatever it was that was cheap, and then have to sneak in an- another bottle sometime during the week, lather, rinse, repeat. Uh, but it was the Christmas day when I found myself passed out on the floor at two o'clock in the afternoon. I had not been able to go home with family because in the corporate world, everybody wants their deal done by December 31st and nobody goes anywhere. There I was passed out on the floor alone. I couldn't call anybody because I knew I would sound drunk and I had had to get very good at hiding uh, being drunk. I didn't answer the phone after seven o'clock at night. Uh, Just, all of the kind of lies that I told myself about it. But at that point, I really knew I was in trouble. Um, and I wanted to get treatment in California, not in DC, which is a very conservative town. I think it's so conservative that even the underwear are pinstriped. It's just a very buttoned down. And um, so back to California, I went. My I didn't have insurance that covered rehab. So I did an outpatient program. It was called New Beginnings. And um, it, it went very well. Uh, I learned a lot about brain chemistry, learned about, about, um, again, that cross addiction, that pattern of one addiction after another, just manifesting in different ways. And when I left, it was suggested to me that I start going to AA meetings to maintain sobriety. This would have been 1985, I believe. I went to an AA meeting and there was this big 12 step poster on the wall and it had God all over it. And I, I grew up um, Unitarian Universalist. If you look that up in Wikipedia, it has bears no resemblance to the religion I knew, which is, uh, it's only barely a religion. It's got no creed and no dogma. We don't have the 10 commandments. We have the ten the, the 10 questions and the 10 suggestions and the creed really is about the search for truth and meaning in life. So uh, I wasn't buying anybody's God. I would refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance in second grade. I got sent to the principal's office on a regular basis for refusing to say the, the Pledge of Allegiance or, or the Lord's Prayer, sorry, not the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, I just left out the words under God, which were which were added in the 50s during the communist scare. They weren't part of the original pledge. Anyway, it took me two more times into an AA meeting before I thought that probably wasn't for me. Then I got the book and I read the chapter to the wife. That was followed by the chapter to the atheist and the agnostic. And that was the end of of AA for me. I had a newly sober brain. There uh, There was just nowhere that was gonna work. I found rational recovery. there were a few meetings in Los Angeles and I I do mean a few. I think there were two a week that I could go to and neither one, I think one of them had three people and they must've been both uh, over 70, which at the time, or over 60 at the time seemed to me like fossils. Uh, Now, as I'm 65, I look and think, well, they can't have been that old really. (laughs) But Rational Recovery Help, that's uh, Albert Ellis. I believe, and uh, I still use in other aspects of my life, some of the tools i lived there, rational recovery and smart. I actually don't remember which is which, but it is a much more analytical way about looking at treatment. You look at the urges as a beast, something that's driving you uh, to do behavior that you know is not good for you. And just things like, can I wait five more minutes? To have a drink? Can I wait another half an hour? Can I wait 10 minutes? I did not have a support group. And that is one of the things that uh, I've found in AA that I just didn't have. Nonetheless, I maintained my sobriety, didn't have any problem. I went through another episode of severe illness. I had chronic fatigue syndrome. I ran a fever of 100 to 101 for a year. I could not walk up four steps by three o'clock in the afternoon. I couldn't take care of myself. I was on disability. I had no idea um, what was gonna happen to me. I thought I might live the rest of my life that way. But fortunately um, I recovered. I'm one of the 30%, 33% who recover fully and don't have any, uh, any after effects. But again, that was the period when I quit drinking I had enough brain fuzz as it was, I don't think I would have been able to carry a bottle of wine up the stairs. Uh, but I, I, as I recovered from that, I couldn't go back to work full time. I didn't know if I'd be able to manage it. And I started doing volunteer work in my local community for something called Neighborhood Watch, which is sort of, we look out for each other in the neighborhood and then onto um, issues like homelessness and the environment Um, I live in Venice, California, very close to the ocean, so a lot of environmental issues. Uh, And as I started getting involved in the community, uh, which ultimately became my path uh, in the rest of my life, I started going drinking with friends. I had been told by a therapist that, well, you know, you did not really have much of a pattern of true alcoholism. You know, you had that one period when things were out of control. But. People like you can uh, probably safely drink again on a social basis, should be fine. Uh, So, all right, you know, I I just got a get out of jail free card. I can drink like a normal person again. And I did that for several years. Uh, Even had a trip to Ireland probably around 1990, um, sitting drinking in one of the pubs with my land husband. So, watching all these people just pour alcohol down the trap, and I asked the bartender, Don't you have a problem with drink driving, drunk driving? He said, Well, no, the the, you know, the average chap just has three pints and a couple of shots. <laughs> Get in my little car, <laughs> drive down a, a road that has a stone fence on one side and a ditch on the other side, and a, and a herd of sheep coming down the middle, and thinking, Great, three pints and two shots. Um, So, you know, again, drinking normally at that point, but doing a lot more environmental work and went back to practicing law doing that and eventually got involved in local politics, helped with a couple of campaigns, and I really loved it. My definition of spirituality at this point is finding something bigger than myself to serve. There are a lot of ways to do that. If you're a parent, having children and taking care of them is something bigger than yourself. But for me, it became politics. And I ran for a seat in the California legislature in 1992. Uh, My opponent was a fundamentalist Christian. Just so many wonderful ironies in my life. And uh, the Los Angeles Times, right before the election, did a story on all the money from the fundamentalist Christians that was pouring into the races. Uh, and I wound up winning a seat in the legislature as a Democrat that had been held by Republicans for 40 years, uh, and what that was a place that was where I learned that you can do incredible things if you don't know you can't. Um, and so that was, uh, but that was something I never had expected to do. Um, I had only run for anything one time before, actually twice. Once getting my butt handed to me at a student council election, <laughs> and then. Uh, another campaign where somebody drew a mustache on my poster and I thought, that's it. I'm never running for anything again. But I got to Sacramento State Capitol. I had only even been there once in my life. I had no idea what I was doing. And I have a clear recollection of walking into the Democratic Caucus and having a woman named Marguerite Archie Hudson say, watch out because whatever you did to cope before you got here, you will do more of, if you overeat, you're gonna find yourself really packing on the pounds. Uh, If you do drugs, you're gonna find that you're smoking smoking a lot of dope or doing a lot of Coke. If you drink, you're gonna find you drink a lot. And that was definitely true. And it's uh, another one of those places where the whole culture is just steeped in alcohol there's a famous watering hole near the Capitol that uh, where a lot of the deals were made. And you, you, you really needed, you know, the drinking was where the deals got made. There's a, a famous deal called the napkin deal signed by the doctors, the trial lawyers and the, the big tobacco companies. It was made on a napkin in this bar and the napkin is framed uh, inside the bar. I also found uh, myself, somebody else who, like my friends uh, who provided all the cocaine in law school, uh, knew all of the people who owned the wineries in the Napa Valley. And so we started dating and it was not unusual to go on a picnic out on one of the state beaches with a couple of bottles of wine uh, just for the afternoon and then start again in the evening. But we were going uh, to the vineyards we weren't in the tasting room we were back with the owners well that was you know pretty special i knew that i was drinking alcohol i was having hangovers uh, there was no doubt in my mind but i was having too much fun to want to deal with it uh, and i remember talking to that boyfriend about it and he said well you know you can't be an alcoholic if you're drinking 80 a bottle of wine well i i knew that wasn't true <laughs> but I wanted to be in denial and so I was. I had also taken in a young woman who, um, whose father had murdered her mother in, when she was 15, which she witnessed. And um, I was asked to provide her with a, a room in my house for a few weeks while we got things organized for her. And um, she stayed. She became like a foster daughter to me and got her through, uh, eventually through an MFA um, at University of Southern California, though I haven't seen her in three years because she's drinking and I don't know where she is. Sorrow every day. But she got pregnant for the first time and I was not going to be drunk grandma. I already knew I had a problem, but that was for me the moment of clarity. All right, I have to deal with this. I'm not going to be drunk grandma. And once again, I went to an outpatient program at that point in 1995. I would have been asked to resign from the legislature if I had owned up to being an alcoholic. And I loved what I was doing. It gave me a platform to deal with environmental issues, to deal with um, discrimination against my LGBT friends. So I was very secretive about it. And the irony is I was more secretive about getting help than I had been about the drinking. Uh, but The program was, I think it was through through UCLA. It was an excellent program. I only had two people in my office who knew that I was um, in treatment, but I was very determined. And I went to AA after the program and I had the version of God that's gift of desperation. I absolutely wanted to get sober. I knew I was done. I knew that I wasn't gonna have the grace of another period where I could drink socially or just, not you know be able to stay away from it, and um, so I started going to an AA meetings. Not in my district that I represented. I was terrified that somebody would find me out. I didn't want to read about that on the front page of the newspaper. Uh, although I'm outed at this point, I'm I'm not. Uh, there's no anonymity. People know I'm an alcoholic. So I I uh, found a group where I was lucky. Uh, I had people who took me aside and said, you know, don't worry about the God stuff. Just anything that's not you will will suffice. But I spent a lot of time worrying about it because of of all the God stuff. I picked up the big book one more time, read that chapter to the atheist and agnostic again and parked the book and didn't pick it up again for probably 20 years. Eventually I got comfortable enough to start sponsoring events uh, around sobriety in the state. Capital, and discovered that Governor Schwarzenegger's chief of staff is a former heroin addict. I'm not outing her. She's outed herself and that there were a lot of people around me who were addicts and was able to to do things in the legislature that actually were about treatment for alcoholism uh, or policy. Someone had a a piece of legislation that would have made it a crime to do drugs while pregnant. and so you couldn't come in and get prenatal care without being um, drug tested. Well, the result of that for most of the pregnant women radics addicts that I know would be you just wouldn't go get prenatal care. You certainly aren't gonna stop drinking just because you can't get prenatal care. Uh, and so the three alcoholics, the three sober alcoholics in the legislature stopped that. Basically we stopped it. It would have become law and it would have caused more babies who had um, fetal alcohol syndrome. And but so I went along, I had a job I really loved. I was getting ready to retire. California has term limits. And then somebody sent me a file about an organization that was looking at the vulnerabilities of electronic voting systems in elections. And we had had uh, a couple of elections where there was concern about election fraud. I started looking at that I stayed up for three days and nights reading all this stuff and thought, oh my God, anybody could come in and hack our our voting systems. And I ran for California Secretary of State, which is basically like a job interview with 18 million people. One of the most bizarre experiences imaginable. Um, And I was sober and thank God for it because the, uh, the travel, the constant pressure. If I'd been drinking, I would have been drunk just it w- well, I would have been out of the campaign for a long time, but I won that seat. Um, started doing my review of electronic voting machines, and perhaps a year later, I got a call from Caroline Kennedy, who is John F. Kennedy's daughter. Uh, Kennedy wrote a book called Profiles and Courage when he had back surgery and was flat on his back. And I was told that I was being given the Profiles and Courage Award for politicians who put principles above partisanship. Uh, when my office told me Caroline Kennedy was calling, I told them to go take a lying fleep because um, Caroline Kennedy doesn't call kids who grew up in Rockford, Illinois, and who were alcoholics, who'd had anorexia and bulimia and still dealt with mental health issues. Um, just an amazing honor and one that I I could never have imagined. But uh, during uh, around the same time, I started, um, I was speaking to a lot of high school and college groups, particularly girls. And I didn't realize until later that it was my 12th step, because I was always asked to talk a little bit about my path to becoming Secretary of State. And I always talked about having anorexia, having bulimia, having had to deal with alcoholism and depression. Um, and I basically wanted to give those students um, a license to acknowledge if they had an issue and permission to ask for help because asking for help has always been one of the hardest things I have to, I hate asking for help. I'll try changing a tire for myself and jump up and down on the damn tire iron for a half an hour before I before I let somebody bigger than me come help me get the uh, the lug nuts off. And the moment from my political career that I will remember the most is not the day I introduced Barack Obama and uh, Barack Obama and Clinton on the. Uh, on a national debate stage. It was the day that a girl came up to me after a talk in tears, just senior in high school. She said, um, I have an eating disorder and I have never told anyone in the world. And that's for me, the essence of spirituality is finding a way to touch one other person's heart, to give them a path to being able to acknowledge a problem, no matter what it is, uh, and to deal with it. Uh, and I, I've continued to spend a lot of time speaking with, uh, with groups like that, particularly of young people. Um, so I married. I married again in the after I was sober. Great marriage. I'm sure people would have said we were a power couple. We spent a year on different coasts, and when he came back, the marriage, which was then a 14-year marriage, started to become abusive, not physically, but uh, when you have somebody who won't say thank you or pleased you for over a year, who's supposed to be the person who loves you the most, and who screams all the time and tells you that you're a piece of garbage and not worth anything, um, it starts to wear. So I was dealing with that. Term limits. So I was going to have to leave the Secretary of State's office. It meant I had to move. Uh, then I was going to be in a nasty divorce. I had a parent who was dying, all those stressors at the same time. Uh, and the result of that was I went into a complete mental health tailspin. But one of my early battles in AA was that I was told that I could not be sober if I took anything that affected me from the neck up. And that basically made me a liar from the day I walked in the door because I was taking antidepressants. I needed to take antidepressants. And if I had said in that room, I'm taking antidepressants, my, sober, my sobriety date would have been taken away from me. I've been told, sorry, you're not sober. I know now that there's a pamphlet. I didn't know there was a pamphlet. Somebody had a big tub of literature. <laughs> I didn't know what was in it. Uh, The meeting schedule was all anybody ever bought from that. But I I spent, I was in just complete inability to do anything. My sister and a good friend came and literally extracted me, um, came back to LA and my neighbor would not allow me to come to my own house. I lived with her for a year and a half. Uh, My weight dropped again to dangerously low levels. I could not get out of bed. I couldn't function. No amount of traditional pills or anything like that seemed to help. Eventually, completely by accident, I found something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, And it's a very long-term treatment. It took about six months of going first five days a week. Uh, it works for some people, but not for everyone. And a lot of it depends on how good the person is who's dealing with it. I'm near UCLA. I got lucky. I found someone who was great. I got my life back. Uh, and I really had no life. I couldn't get out. It was a big fall from going from uh, the Profile and Courage Award to not being able to get out of bed. But as I recovered, I thought, okay, I need to get back to AA. I, I've sort of all my social ties are gone. My closest friends are still in Sacramento. And I found secular meetings at that point. It was um, unbelievable. I could stop um, doing the two skills that had been most important to me, which was um, selective deafness and simultaneous translation. I could actually just listen to people. I could talk about reality. I could talk about um, eating disorders and other addictions which for me go hand in hand with alcoholism, it's all the same thing. you know. It's me trying to w- find a way to escape uh, and not caring that the way I was finding was gonna kill me or somebody else. Uh, and I asked my foster daughter, Maya, to help me. I was later to discover that she'd begun drinking heavily. Um, she embezzled a lot of money from me. I almost lost my house and um, Ultimately, I had to tell her that I could not support her and that the minute she wanted to get help or get in treatment, I would be there. She got a DUI. I thought, great, she'll get court ordered. This is the shot. Stole more money from me, hired a lawyer, got, got, got off. So I don't know where she is. I do know that my two granddaughters are fine. They're now 19 and 23. The oldest spent a year and a half in a program in Utah because she got addicted to crystal meth when she was a freshman in high school. So she's long time sober uh, and they're fine. And I like my life. I'm really grateful for Zoom. I'm very happy that I found the secular meetings before the pandemic hit. And uh, I've... I just have had an amazing life and it continues to be amazing. Next week, I'm gonna go help a, a very famous bass player. I'm a music freak and I've gotten to know, well, I had Jackson Brown do a fundraiser for me when I was secretary of state. I mean, it's just been an amazing life, but uh, so I'm gonna go help him with a book signing. And this is somebody who I would never, have bass player played on the tapestry album with Carol King and toured with Bill Collins anyway. That's the kind of life I have, I have now. And even during those years of serious depression, it never occurred to me to deal with it by drinking. But I also know that even though I have periods when I don't drink just because I don't, I'm in big trouble if I ever try that again. I'm done. End of the road. 25 years of uh, a life that I'm really grateful for. And I'm once again out. This time, a lot of traditional meetings uh, talking about the fact that there are secular meetings and that you can get sober without having to believe in a higher power. And it's an outside issue for me now. My spirituality is about taking actions in life that are bigger than myself. And that's what the program has given to me, as well as an incredible group of of friends who I can rely on. So eventually we'll get back to in-person meetings, but for now, you'll just have to trust me when I tell you that I have great legs and look terrific in high heels. Thank you.